Welcome, dear readers. You are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are recording from various locations around Winnipeg. We would like to acknowledge that we are in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. In this episode, we will discuss four books nominated for this year's Manitoba Young Readers' Choice Awards. I'm Dennis, and I normally work at the Idea Mill at Millennium Library. Across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Erica Ball. I'm normally the branch head at Fort Garry Library. And across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor Lockhart. I'm normally the branch head at the Louis Riel Library. And across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Kirsten, and I'm the librarian at Harvey Smith Library. But today I am your physical but not social distancing librarian. Because I'm still social. That's my thing. I can't get used to this new vocabulary. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. We love receiving your questions and comments because they add so much to our discussions. Let us know how you feel about the books we're reading by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or leaving a comment on our website, wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Find out if your comments made it on air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and other fine podcasting services. This episode will be a little different from our usual for two reasons. Usually, we record our episodes with all of us gathered together. However, we're in the midst of a viral pandemic. Medical experts and all levels of government are encouraging everyone to stay home as much as possible to minimize the spread of COVID-19. All branches of Winnipeg Public Library are currently closed, and we're working from home and talking to each other via video chat. Also, we usually focus on a single book, but this month we're discussing four books, all of which were nominated for this year's Manitoba Young Readers' Choice Awards. One of our colleagues, Colette, is chair of the Mirka Committee and pre-recorded a short spot to tell us more about it. Hi, I'm Colette Dufo, chair of the Manitoba Young Readers' Choice Awards, otherwise known as Mirka. Our mission is to promote Canadian books to young readers at a time when they are transitioning to reading independently. Our goal is to create readers for life. With that in mind, Mirka strives to connect young readers with books that are well-written, have lots of kid appeal, and reflect the diversity of our country. Every April, children in grades 4 to 9 are invited to vote for their favorite title. We have two categories, the Sundogs list for students in grades 4 to 6 and the Northern Lights list for students in grades 7 to 9. In early May, Mirka announces the winner and we invite winning authors to an award ceremony in the fall. The only way to be invited to the ceremony is to vote. You can vote through your school library or by visiting any branch of the Winnipeg Public Library or McNally Robinson Booksellers during the voting period. You can find more information about voting on our website, www.merca.ca. If you love prizes, Merca also regularly hosts book giveaways through contests on our Twitter and Instagram accounts. You can find us at Merca Award, that's M-Y-R-C-A-W-A-R-D. Merca is a not-for-profit registered charity and is run entirely by volunteers. We are eternally grateful to the publishers who support our awards by sending us all of the books that are eligible to be listed every year. We would also love to send a shout-out to all the teachers and librarians who promote the list to students. You are doing an amazing job. Last but not least, thank you to Winnipeg Public Library for dedicating a Time to Read podcast to Mirka. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Colette. 
For this episode, we each read a different book, and we're each going to do a mini-book report on the title we read. But you don't have to take our word about the books we're discussing. Teacher Colleen Nelson from Linden Meadows School helped record four of her students giving their take on these same titles, and we'll play those clips after our own reviews to give you a more complete picture. I'm first, yes. My book that I'm going to be uh, doing my book report about is called Surviving the City, which I'm holding up so that my podcast team can take a look at, even though you can't see it, but it's a beautiful uh, graphic novel. It's the debut graphic novel by Tasha Spillett. She is a Naheo Cree woman, and she is also Trinidadian. She is a land-based educator. She does community-led work at centers on land and about land and water defense and the protection of women and girls. She's working on her PhD in education through University of Saskatchewan. She lives here in Winnipeg. This book is also illustrated by Natasha Donovan, who is a member of the Métis Nation of British Columbia. She's a self-taught illustrator with a degree in anthropology. That's for Erica, anthropology. Uh, She also, um, Natasha Donovan also illustrated the award-winning 2017 graphic novel, The Sockeye Mother, which you may be familiar with. So this book, this graphic novel actually opens with a poem, a really beautiful, touching poem called Little Sister. And um, it almost actually reads like a song. And Tasha Spillett has explained that she wrote this while she was teaching grade seven. And as she was teaching these kids, she realized that many of her students had already experienced racialized and and sexualized violence. And so this uh, poem was written for them. And so it's a really powerful way to open the story. So the story centers around two best friends, so close that they feel like sisters. So Mikwan, who is Anishinaabe, and Dez, who is Ininu. They are so close uh, to each other that they actually uh, get their moon time together and they completed their berry fast together. And I had never actually heard uh, about the berry fast, but this is a ceremony that marks this a stage of, of life leading from youth into womanhood. And the girls fast from berries for a year. And then there's a feast at the end where they receive gifts from their community and they give gifts as well. So I didn't actually, I'd never heard of the berry fast before. So Mikwan and Des are really closer than, than two girls really could be. So they're almost like sisters. But the story does take a turn when Des runs away and sort of disappears when it looks like she won't be able to live with her kukum or her grandmother anymore and that she will have to go and live in a group home. And at one point in the book, the her kukum has described or likened the group home to uh, almost similar to uh, residential schools of the past. So not a great place to go to and she really doesn't want to go to a group home. But Mikwan is devastated when she can't find Des. And in her search for Des and in with all her worry, then memories of her own missing mother services. And so it's a story about these two best friends and Mikwan searching for Des and Des just trying to find some sort of peace and support. 
The city in the book, Surviving the City, is Winnipeg. So just like the break uh, that we read last month, um, it's kind of cool to read a book that's centered in Winnipeg. There are so many familiar locations. And what also really came through with this graphic novel, too, is there's a really strong sense of community. Both girls get a lot of support from their elder in the culture room at their school. Des finds help through Ganikanichik Community Center. Mikwan visits the Thunderbird House to help prepare for the march for the missing and murdered Indigenous girls and women. Um, so that's kind of cool to see these buildings and um, to see these locations. There were some really cool details in the book as well. Like in the very first frame, there's a poster on the wall for a girl called Echo, which is the graphic novel that Katrina Vermette just wrote last year, I think, or a couple of years ago, about the Red River uh, resistance. So that's kind of neat. There's also a poster in Miquan's bedroom for uh, Leonard Sumner's album Res Poetry. And Leonard Sumner is actually Tasha Spillett's partner. So that's kind of cool. And he's an amazing singer-songwriter. So we walk through Winnipeg with the girls. They go to Portage Place, which they see as being too creepy. They walk to the Forks, uh, which they love going to the Forks. They love going to Adina Circle. But as they're going to the Forks, they walk by the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And Miquan says um, that she's actually never been in there because her dad said there's enough to learn about human rights violations all around us. So Tasha right? Spillett's put a little bit of a critique in there as well, which is also super interesting. I did read this book more than once first because, you know, you want to just read the story, right? Do they find Des? What happened to Des? But then you read it for the art and to just look at a lot of the details and it's um there's a really beautiful kind of um, color palette the artwork depicts a lot of the emotion and feeling um, especially with the character of des i found but really what's super interesting about this book is there's this interesting and really impactful artistic tool that natasha donovan uses where she draws and depicts these protective spirits of those who have passed on. So those missing and murdered women who still walk with the girls, who protect them, who nurture them and care for them still as they're going, as they're walking through Portage Place, as they're um, walking to Adina Circle. But then there's also these negative, almost alien looking figures that also exist. And these really represent the constant threats to these girls and women. So representing colonialism, representing the creepy men on the bus or in the park, but also the police and the taxi drivers who have been, of course, threats to, to many Indigenous folks in our city. And there's a really powerful frame right at the end, again, no words, that shows the Stolen Sisters March at the end of the book, where the protective, nurturing, caring spirits are actually overwhelming the threats. So there's actually sort of this kind of hopeful sense at the end, I found. So I would say this is an important book, an important story to share and to learn about. I was reading lots of folks who aren't from Canada had read this graphic novel, and they had no idea about any of this. So it's it's a really important book to learn about this issue. Of course, Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit folks face a greater risk of experiencing 
racialized and gender-based violence, being murdered and, and going missing. And actually, right at the end of the books, Tasha Spillett actually includes a lot of important stats and some further reading about this issue. So I highly recommend this book. It's a story about surviving the city, but also thriving in the city. So it was a great book. That's my personal endorsement. But like Dennis said, you don't have to take our word for it. <laughs> Jackson also has a review about this book. Hi, I'm Jackson from Linden Meadows School, and I read Surviving the City by Tasha Spillett and illustrated by Natasha Donovan. This book is about Miquan and Dez, two best friends who have to figure out how to deal with Dez's sick grandma as the threat of a group home looms. And then Dez disappears, and Miquan is left looking for her, which brings up memories of the painful loss of her mother. I like the book because it's about two Indigenous girls who live in Winnipeg. It shines a light on all the missing and murdered Indigenous women and the crisis that is facing any communities. My favorite character was Dez because she's a strong character who wants to do the right thing. She's trying to connect with her culture and is worried about her grandma. You should read this book if you enjoy graphic novels and books about important subjects. The art in this book is really well done. There's lots of symbols that help keep the book interesting. I enjoyed the art as much as I enjoyed the story. Thanks, Jackson. Hi, I'm Larry Verstraight, author of Coop the Great, a story about a dog told by the dog. You are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast. So my book is Coop the Great by Larry Verstraight, who is a well-known name in the Winnipeg book scene. He lives in Winnipeg now. He's written 16 books for young people. This is the, I think this is the first one I've read of his, but I'm not sure. So it's about an old dog, a dachshund or wiener dog called Cooper, and his adventures after being adopted from a shelter by an old man named Mike. So old dog, old man. Mike and Coop have a lot in common, other than the fact that they are both old. They both care a lot about other people. They are both thoughtful and kind and very brave when they need to be. Mike's daughter, Jess, and her kids, Zach and Emma, are trying to start again after leaving her abusive husband, Rick. Thing is, Rick won't leave them alone. So when she finally decides to move them all to a new town, Mike offers to drive them there. What follows leads to an epic act by Coop to save them all, as great as any of the super dogs of history. I chose this book because I love dogs. Especially funny ones with short legs. Um, I also really like reading stories from the point of view of animals to guess what life could be like for them, and especially for see what animals think of us and the crazy things we do. It also reminded me, well, it reminded me a lot of the books that I really loved as a kid, such as other books that are from the point of view of dogs or wolves, like Call of the Wild or White Fang by Jack London, or Julie's Wolf Pack by Jean Craighead George, which was a follow-up to Julie of the Wolves. But I don't think you need to be an animal or dog lover to read this book, because it's really about trying your best when things are hard, and surprising yourself with what you are capable of. So that was Coop the Great by Larry Verstraight. And I also always like it when the title and author rhyme. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Jessica from Linden Meadows, and I read Coop the Great by Larry Verstraight. This book is about a dog who had a bad past with his owners. He was left stranded by his previous owners, but his life changed when he met Mike. I liked the detail in how any chapter would end with a mini cliffhanger. I liked how naive Coop was. Even though I understood his problem, Coop didn't always know what was going on, and it gave good tension to the book. 
I just wanted everything to turn real right for him. My favorite character was Mike because he cared for others more than he cared for himself. You should read this book if you like hopeful and descriptive books. The book is uplifting and teaches people that even though if you had a bad past, you can always start over. Thanks, Jessica. Hi, I'm Sherry Green, author of Missing Mike. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast. Well, sure, I guess I'll go next. This is going to be a bit confusing because uh, (laughs) my book is called Missing Mike by Sherry Green. And in this book, Mike is the dog. (laughs) It's not the man. There's no man, Mike, in here. It's a dog. And he's named Mike because he's named after Mike Wazowski from Monsters Incorporated uh, (laughs) because poor old Mike is one-eyed, just like Mm. Mike in the movie, in the uh, Pixar film, I guess it was. And the whole idea with this story by Sherry Green is that Mike belongs to a family, particularly an 11-year-old girl called Kara. Their family have to suddenly evacuate their home because of forest fires. Sherry Green, the author, lives on Vancouver Island. And although the town is a fictionalized place called Pine Grove, I imagine it somewhere either on Vancouver Island or or somewhere in, in British Columbia. And wouldn't you know, they only have about 10 minutes to pack up. And in those 10 minutes, Mike gets scared and runs off. And they can't wait for him to come back before they have to pile into their car and drive to safety. And so the entire book is Kara trying to figure out a way to get back to Pine Grove or to connect maybe online with uh, different organizations to try to see if Mike's okay. And that's sort of the gist of the book. And while she is doing all this, she has to reevaluate her definition of what home is because she meets a lot of people along the way that offer her help and her family help. And one interesting thing I should mention about this book is the structure in which it was written. It was written in the style of something called a verse novel. And apparently Sherry Green has uh, written a couple other books in this format, which is really cool. I had no idea. If you looked at it, if you just opened the book at any random page you would think you were looking at a book of poetry because each line or each page or every couple of pages starts with a title and then it's written like in verse. So, uh, so when I, opened them, I was like, Oh, this is a book of poems. Uh, but no, but if you start at the very beginning on page one and read through, it reads like a story, but just like with poetry, how the words are extra carefully chosen and they're, kind of used very sparingly, it creates this very interesting, almost like atmospheric kind of thing. So I don't know, I could just read the first page just so you get a sense of maybe what the first stanza of this book sounds like. So it just starts off called, and if if we were pretending that this first one was a poem, this poem is called Too Close. It hasn't rained for 37 days. The air crackles in the heat. Gold grass crunches beneath my tires. As I whip along the forest trail, climbing toward the viewpoint, Mike lopes beside my bike, barking at crickets or squirrels, or maybe for the sheer joy of it. Heather has been away almost three weeks visiting her relatives. She's due back in a day or two, but until then, it's just me and Mike. Even though I kind of miss hanging out with Heather, Mike and my bike make for a pretty great summer. (laughs) 
and it goes from there. And and it's very readable. And uh, my uh, daughter, Audrey, 10 years old, uh, she and I would read a bit of this every night together. And uh, because it's in poetry format, we could cover a lot of ground. And after the first night, uh, we put it down, I put the bookmark in, and she kind of said, Dad, would would it be okay if I just kept reading a little bit, a little bit Mm -hmm. more? Uh, but I'll keep your bookmark in and then you can maybe read tomorrow and then get caught up. And I just thought that was just really, really sweet. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure. So then she left her light on and she really got into the story and wanted to read a few pages more, but then she didn't want to read too far ahead because she didn't know how far I could read the next day. Uh, and so then we finally got caught up the next night and that's kind of how we read this book that's where great. she would read it a little bit ahead. And it was, it was great. So yeah, it was, it was, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would like to read maybe some other books by Sherry Green. One that apparently got a lot of attention was called Macy McMillan and the Rainbow Goddess, uh, which was also written in this verse novel style. So yeah, I would completely recommend this book, but you don't have to take my word for it. (laughs) Hi, I'm Isabella from Linden Meadows School, and I read the book Missing Mike by Sherry Green. This book is about a dog who goes missing during the forest fires in Alberta. The dog is named Mike and his owner, Kara, is devastated when her family is evacuated and has to leave Mike behind. I like the mysterious hooks and the way caring people in the shelters helped look after Kara and her family. Even though there was lots of sadness, the kind people helped Kara to feel better. My favorite character was Mike, the dog, because he never gave up. Even though he had one eye, he kept fighting and looked for a bright side in all the scary moments. He always believed that his owner would come back for him. You should read this book if you like books in verse, like ebb and flow, or suspense books. I also think Missing Mike has an emotional punch and shows how your life can change in seconds. Thanks, Isabel. Hi, this is Susan Nielsen, author of No Fixed Address, and you're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast. Enjoy! Okay, so the book I was reading for this month was No Fixed Address by Susan Nielsen. So Susan Nielsen is a Canadian author. She's received a Governor General's Award and a Canadian Library Association Book of the Year for Children Award. She started her writing career with the Degrassi franchise, writing scripts for the TV show as well as for books in the series. She also played the janitor in Degrassi Junior High, which is kind of neat. And a neat connection for us is her first independent novel was called Word Nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Yay! So this story is about Felix Knutson, a 12-year-old living in Vancouver with his mom, Astrid. Felix is smart, funny, and very likable. Astrid is loving, but unreliable. She has a hard time holding on to work or a place to live and has lost a lot of friends due to some of her behaviors. When they lose their apartment during the summer, Astrid tells Felix they'll live in their borrowed, and I, borrowed is in quotes here, camper van for a month until they can get back on their feet. Kind of a camping adventure trip. But that month gets extended when Astrid can't maintain a job. Felix goes to school in the fall, hiding the truth about his living situation as best he can, even from his friends Dylan and Winnie. But this gets harder and harder to do as Felix and Astrid's situation keeps getting worse. And then Felix gets a chance to audition for the junior edition of his favorite trivia game show, Who, What, Where, When. Suddenly, Felix sees a solution to all of their problems. The prize money from the show would be enough to get a place to live. But as things play out, things don't go quite the way Felix hoped. That summary is based in part on the blurb from the publisher and from the author's website. 
So I found the story very gripping. At every stage of the story, I felt fully involved with the characters, and I couldn't wait to find out what was going to happen next. It's full of warmth and humor, even when the story involves some difficult situations and topics. Our narrator, Felix, is very easy to like. He's smart and kind and does his best in difficult situations. His friendship with Dylan and Winnie is a lot of fun to watch. I particularly enjoyed Winnie as a character. She's also smart and kind, but she's kind of socially awkward, and the way she and Felix connect over time is lovely. Felix's mom, Astrid, is a very complicated figure. She clearly loves Felix dearly and wants to take care of him, but she's struggling with trauma from her own childhood and with some undertreated mental health issues, and she's really in over her head. She makes a lot of poor choices, and Felix suffers because of them, but she doesn't seem to know another way to deal with things. Despite it all, Felix knows Astrid loves him, and he loves her. During parts of the story, I would feel really upset with Astrid, and then when you hear more of her backstory, you'd feel lots of love and concern for her instead. Susan Nielsen's writing is excellent. It's easy to read, so younger readers should have no problem following the story, but there are a lot of subtleties that older readers will pick up on that add even more depth to the story. A lot of important social issues are brought up through the story, including homelessness, poverty, mental health, and the way our society deals with all of them. I felt like things were handled in a realistic and kind way, so that the reader gets a chance to really sympathize with Felix and Astrid's struggles, and to get some insight as to how this type of thing could happen. But it's not so heavy-handed that it gets hard to read. I thought No Fixed Address was an excellent read, and I highly recommend it to anyone who enjoys a good, realistic story with interesting characters, especially if you're curious about the issue of homelessness. It's written for younger readers, but this middle-aged man really enjoyed it, so don't <laughs> let the fact that it's aimed at younger readers dissuade you if you're older. But you don't have to take my word for it. Hi, I'm Josh from Linden Middle School, and I read No Fixed Address by Susan Nielsen. This book is about a boy named Felix who is between homes which means he's living in a van his mom sort of stole from her ex-boyfriend. I liked the ending because it had a few twists until all of Felix's problems got sorted out. There was also a lot of humor and semi-inappropriate parts that made the book really entertaining. I've never read a book where the main character is in a situation like Felix, so it was eye-opening to think that a lot of people face similar situations if they are homeless. My favorite character was Felix because he tries to be as honest as he can, even when his mom makes questionable choices. The whole story made me sympathize with him. At certain points, I could really feel his pain. You should read this book if you like trauma, realistic fiction stories, or humor. The story takes place in Vancouver, and all the scenes with the game show Who, What, Where, When are really entertaining. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Trevor, when you were talking about your book, it made me think of uh, the Fort McMurray fires. Like, was that, I wonder if that was like an influence or a... Did you? That's, a, that's a great question. If I had uh, done a little bit more research uh, <laughs> on the author, I may uh, might have something uh, interesting to say about that. But but it's just interesting, like these books are all very sort of um, a lot of them de deal with really timely issues. Right. So, you know, that we could relate to, you mm -hmm. know, the, the, what we all heard about the Fort, uh, the Fort McMurray fires, um, the missing and murdered indigenous women, um, homelessness, Domestic dogs abuse. with short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say yeah. dogs, dogs with short, short legs. legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the, all the hot button issues of the day. <laughs> well, I, it's interesting. I, I didn't think about Fort McMurray. I, when, reading the book, to me, it felt more like, you know, how those wildfires uh, like around Kelowna seem to happen every summer. It's, it felt more like a situation like that. 
But it, yeah, it could have easily right. have been any any city under siege from nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like also like a lot of like these books are all um, really great for empathy building, you know? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. One of the yeah. things I really noticed in No Fixed Address was a lot of the characters in the story, they were extremely diverse. Like mm-hmm. there's a there's a Syrian couple who owns a grocery store that were refugees uh, from that, that crisis. The uh, Felix's dad, who isn't in the story very much, but he was actually a, uh, a just a friend of Astrid's, and it was uh, like a sperm donor situation. So they haven't really been in contact that much through their life. There's a lot of characters of different backgrounds and things that are just part of the story, and it's not brought up as anything exceptional. It's just this is life. These are all mm-hmm. these different characters that make up the tapestry of our daily life. Mm-hmm. And they were – characterization was really, really good. Mm. Yeah, it's really amazing. Like, I kind of feel in a way that it's too bad that these are kind of categorized as young people books because yeah. – I feel like they're just as awesome for you to read as any book. When I when I, I kept thinking of Lily and the Octopus when I was reading, which is a, a book. I think she's also a, about a, da- a dachshund. I was just going to say, but, um, I'm envisioning, yeah, a dachshund. Yeah. 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 So, and then that's a very popular book club book. But I kind of feel like you'd be fighting an uphill battle trying to get an adult book club to read kids book, mm-hmm. even though very similar in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. the intended audience is slightly different, so... Yeah, that's a good point. But I would read any of the books you guys are talking about. So, yeah. 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 yeah I also, I, I was going to, uh, if you'll allow me, make a honorable mention to another book that was on the Merca list by Christopher Paul Curtis, uh, The Journey of Little Charlie. I, I didn't realize it was on the list. I didn't look at the list of that closely, I guess, when I picked Missing Mike. And no offense to Missing Mike, I really enjoyed it. But Christopher Paul Curtis, I don't know if you guys have ever read him. He is fantastic. He's sort of like Colson Whitehead. But for preteens. Hmm. <laughs> so so hmm. he's written this amazing book called Elijah of Buxton a few years ago about uh, Buxton, Ontario was a, a town just over the border in southern Ontario. And it was made up of people who had escaped through the Underground Railroad oh. to Canada. And Elijah, he's the first freeborn person in Buxton. So his parents and everyone else older were escaped slaves, but he's the first, and it's all written in his voice and how he talks, and you just fall in love with this kid, and he has all these adventures. And so Christopher Paul Curtis has written two more books. I wouldn't call them sequels, but they take place in that same universe. And so The Journey of Little Charlie is the third book in this. A Buxton is mentioned that a couple of characters appear, but it wouldn't be a direct sequel. So I actually read that one. Not that I'm going for extra points or anything, but I, <laughs> I actually read two Merca books. Uh, and, and it was fantastic. I just loved it. I was going to read it anyway once I heard that he had a new book out. So, yeah, Journey of Little Charlie by Christopher Paul Curtis. Well, and I just wanted to just mention one of our listeners on Instagram, Beyond the Pages, talked about their favorite book of all the the Merca selections this year was Sanctuary by Karen Licks. And the book covers a lot of Beyond the Pages favorite themes of science fiction, but with new and modern uh, twists. And the main character is both relatable and believable. And uh, Beyond the Pages also said that she's read about half of the nominees, but that Sanctuary was her favorite by far. So there's another plug for another book by another listener. (laughs) And so if, I guess it's a, a little late to say at this point that uh, we normally switch to our segment, Can You Tell Me a Book You Would Also Like? Yeah. 
So we've got two down. <laughs> Did anyone else want to recommend a book quickly? Well, I think that it's just safe to say, read anything from the Merca list. And if you need to, go to previous year's Merca list because they're pre-chosen to be excellent Canadian kids' books with huge appeal. So go to the Merca list is what I say. And also, I'd say to our listeners, if you've read any of the Merca books for this year, either the four that we've covered in detail or any of the other ones, uh, leave a comment on our uh, Facebook group page or Instagram or our, our website uh, about what you read and what you thought of it. Give us a mini review. Uh, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are on these Merca titles. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of Merca, if you want to check out the books on the list, you could visit the Merca website, which is M-Y-R-C-A dot C-A, Merca dot C-A, and you can check out the list of nominated books there. The voting for this year's Merca Awards are actually on right now. They started them up a little while ago. So if you've read these books and you want to vote on your favorites, go to Merca.ca and vote. The voting time has been extended right now until schools reopen. And of course, we don't know exactly when that will be. But if you've read some of these books, get your vote in early. It never hurts. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to just mention, too, that, I mean, of course, the libraries are closed right now, so you maybe can't get your print copy. But if you go to Overdrive or Libby and you just search the kids and the teens collections, they have uh, we have all of the Merca, the 2020 uh, Merca lists right there. And you can either get a book right away or put your name on hold for one of the books. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Nerd Words for Word Nerds, the part of the show where our hosts boil down their most prevalent thoughts of the past month into one word. I'd like, like to go first. I'd like to go first because it segs nicely from that end of that discussion, which is that I keep forgetting that I can't get any book that I want from the library right now. And so I had come across this word, and I, I apologize that I cannot remember exactly where, but somewhere online, and it's a bibliophobia, uh-huh. And it supposedly means the intense fear of being without something to read, hmm. um, <laughs> which I am fighting right now because I have books in my house, but I don't buy a lot of books because I work in a library and I can get pretty much anything, you know, within a week or so. So it's, I looked, I checked it out, a bibliophobia. It's a kind of a funny made up word. It's not really a word, at least not yet. Um, It's not in any of the dictionaries, but it seems to be a thing going around on the web. And I figure it's, I don't think it'll ever be in the dictionary because bibliophobia is actually a word that means a dislike of books. So a bibliophobia would be the opposite, which I guess would just be a love of books. So I don't know, but um, mm-hmm. I did find when I was looking for this stuff on Book Riot, I found another amazing word, which is alogotransophobia, which again, I don't know if it's a real word or couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't find it anywhere else except for people just talking about funny words. But alogotransophobia is apparently the fear of being without something to read on public transport. So ah. <laughs> I've also experienced that. So there's your words for today. A bibliophobia or alogotransophobia. And uh, hopefully we all get our books back soon. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if uh, I could go next, but uh, my uh, word is definitely a real word. (laughs) And it it actually was provided to me uh, from uh, my daughter, Audrey, because this past week she has been home from school doing school from home, which has been very interesting and different. Her 
teacher, Mr. Joyner, has been putting out a uh, video every morning from his kitchen, talking to the kids and giving them two or three tasks to do. And so, I mean, I think Audrey appreciates it. I know I really, really appreciate Mr. Joyner's emails. It gives my uh, day meaning as well. And so uh, I hope he continues them. But one of the things that we've been doing as a family is a lot of uh, baking. So my nerd word is tablespoon. Mm. Now, now it's, a, now it's a word that, you know, we use all the time, but uh, I don't know if you, we really know that much about the word tablespoon. Uh, in Canada and the UK, it means 15 milliliters, but in the United States, it's only 14.8 milliliters what? because it's half of a fluid ounce. But get this, in Australia, it's 20 milliliters. Mm. No Whoa. explanation for that. Down under. So, so yeah, exactly. When you go down under, you get a little bit more. Is what they say. And, what and they so say, it's good yeah. to know that if you're if if you're if you're not the same, if you if you are using a recipe book from Australia, you know, keep that in mind. A tablespoon is not always a tablespoon. And uh, I just found this quotation. It's from Wikipedia, but I just love it. I'm just gonna read it. The capacity of the utensil is defined neither by law nor custom, and may or may not significantly approximate the measurement which I think just means that nobody knows. Nobody knows what a tablespoon is. Um, but sounds, sounds super deep. Yes, ar- around 1700, this is a bit of history, the place setting became popular in Europe. Before that, people brought their own spoons wherever they went, just like they would carry their own wallet. they carry their own spoon. But then people got fancy and they had their own place setting. So there was the tablespoon, the table knife, the table fork, etc. And then later on, the teaspoon and the dessert spoon arrived. And then the tablespoon was reserved just for soup. And then the world went crazy, uh, spoon crazy. I mean, there was the mustard spoon, the salt spoon, the soup spoon, the sugar spoon. And uh, eventually, the, <laughs> let me just see, eventually the dessert spoon and the soup spoon became the main spoons that people would use to eat out of bowls. <laughs> and so the tablespoon then was relegated to a serving spoon. So in some parts of the world tablespoons are, are bigger spoons that are like serving. They're not used as part of a table setting for cutlery. So there you go. Uh, I mean, knew. the tablespoon, and I'm not even going to get into like rounded tablespoons and level <laughs> tablespoons when we're talking about measuring because I, that I'm already messed up. So uh, <laughs> tablespoon. Thank you, Audrey. Uh, our baking has actually been turning out okay, even though no one seems to know what a tablespoon is. Uh, that's amazing. That's fantastic. It was so complicated. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I'll go next because I actually also am going to talk about food and cutlery. So it just makes sense, right? I'll go (laughs) next. Wow, that's amazing. So I was just away in Morocco and uh, uh, there are so many like amazing fruits and fresh vegetables there. And I was able for the very first time in my life to eat a persimmon, a fresh persimmon. And I mentioned this to Trevor, and he's like, I've never heard of a persimmon. <laughs> I really haven't. I can't, I can't wait to find out. <laughs> so, and I, I had heard of a persimmon. Like, I had, like, you know, you know, you read about it um, in books. I Like, I feel like it's sort of maybe a, like a, even a sort of a sensuous, sensual fruit. In some no, of the, book, in the, read, some of the books have, that I've read. We have not read. been reading the same books. I have not read books that talk about sensual fruits. Anyway, but I had never actually eaten one before. So the persimmon is an edible fruit from the species of trees, uh, Diospyrus. And the, the most countries in the world, they call the persimmon 
khaki because the tree is known as Diosporus khaki, which uh, also means divine fruit, uh, wheat of Zeus or God's pear. But the word persimmon actually, and I think it's only North America that uses the word persimmon, comes from the 1600s from the Powhatan or Algonquin people's word Pasimenan, which is fruit dried from Pasimeno, he dries fruit. So I just thought that was very interesting because it sort of comes from more of an indigenous word. And then it also shows up in, here's where the cutlery comes in. It also shows up in Ozark folklore because the severity of the upcoming winter is said to be predicted by slicing a persimmon seed and observing the cutlery-shaped formation within it. So if you see, if the shape inside looks like a fork, the winter will be mild. If you see a spoon, there will be lots of snow. And if there's a knife, winter will be bitingly cold, like cuts like a knife. And also in Korean folklore, the dried persimmon has a reputation for scaring away tigers. Persimmon. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful That's good because I've been been really worried about tigers in the area lately, so that would be something (laughs) to keep in mind. So my nerd word for this month is normal. Hmm. Merriam-Webster defines normal as conforming to a type, standard, or regular pattern. Lexico defines normal as the usual, average, or typical state or condition. These days, a lot of us have not really been able to conform to our typical standard or regular patterns, and our states and conditions have not been usual, average, or typical at all. I'm not the most social person in the world, but I do enjoy some regular, measured interactions with small groups of people, so social distancing is a little more challenging than I would have liked. Little things like not being able to consistently find toilet paper in the supermarket really throw off my sense of balance. Browsing through online forums, a commonly expressed wish is for things to be able to return back to normal. The thing about normal, though, is that what's normal depends a lot on who and where you are, and it can change over time and due to circumstance. The top definition for normal on Urban Dictionary, for instance, is a word made up by this corrupt society so they could single out and attack those who were different. Mm. Another popular definition from that site describes normal as an adjective used by boring people to make themselves feel better. (laughs) In the normal state of affairs, people working certain types of jobs don't get a lot of respect. People checking groceries at supermarkets or stocking shelves, to use an obvious example, don't get paid much and can sometimes be the target of boorish behavior on the part of customers, amongst other things. Now, in this abnormal state where we're dealing with a global pandemic, these same people are utterly essential for everyone to be able to get food and other needed supplies. We can function reasonably well with wealthy CEOs and corporate executives working from home. We can get by while millionaire athletes stop playing sports, but we can't function at all without people on the ground doing so-called menial jobs and putting themselves in harm's way and doing what needs to be done so we can still get rice and beans. So in the current situation, we're confronted with the fact that a lot of people we depend on most for our day-to-day normality are often not paid or treated very well. So while I, too, am looking forward to returning to normal, I'm hoping that the normal we return to isn't exactly the same as the one we've left behind. Wow. Love it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that is my high horse topic for the day. Love it. Yeah. I give it four tablespoons. (laughs) (laughs) Australian tablespoons? <laughs> you know it. Mm. 
So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much, dear readers, for joining us for our 27th episode. We want to extend extra thanks to Colleen Nelson and her students, Isabel, Jackson, Jessica, and Josh from Linden Meadows School, and to Colette Dufault from the Manitoba Young Readers' Choice Awards Committee for their contributions to this episode. Don't forget to check out Mirka's website at myrca.ca and to vote for your favorites. We'd previously planned to read Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver for April, but since all of our physical branches are closed, we've decided to switch to reading books that you can easily find online. So for April, we'll be reading The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's always available on Overdrive, so fire up your e-readers or web browsers and we can discuss Sherlock Holmes next month. Get in on the conversation by finding us on Facebook or emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. Have a book you'd love to hear us discuss? Let us know. We'd love it if you hit subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and we'd love it even more if you gave us a rate and review. You could also tell your book-loving friends about us. And until next time, make sure you find... Time to read! episode, we will discuss four books nominated for this year's Manitoba Young Readers' Choice Awards. I'm Dennis, and I normally work... That's... I'm so sorry. You guys probably heard that, right? That's my phone. Is that a landline? Yes, it's a landline. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Did you just hang out? He picked it up as a young... (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. Like, I don't want to be the one that screws this up. I didn't think about that. That's okay. It's going to probably gonna ring have, again. We're going to have more than one of those. Maybe I shouldn't be sitting right under the <laughs> phone. Maybe not. Maybe you could turn the <laughs> ringer off. Maybe. <laughs> Who has a landline anymore? There, the, ringer, have the landline. ringer's off. Oh, you know what? If you have kids, you should have a landline. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things I really, for, I the things I really noticed. For... <laughs> <laughs> this is where Go that ahead. lag kicks in. <laughs> yeah. There is this beautiful butterfly just like on my windowsill right now. <laughs> I, this is so exciting. It's so It actually looks like very tiger-ish. Oh, Weird. Yay. Need persimmon seeds. Is, yeah. Isn't it way too early for butterflies? <sighs> well, there's one right here. I should take a picture. Is it like orange? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's a good sign. I know. I think it's a very good sign. And it's just like sitting right there. It's lovely. Okay.